Well, go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. We'll be looking at verses 14 through 29 this morning. Uh, My name is Brian. But before we get there, as you're finding your place, uh, I wanted to talk to you this morning about questions. Questions. God created us to ask questions. Great stories are always asking questions, important questions, penetrating questions, questions that make you think. So the Oscars were this past Sunday. Uh, The Black Panther won several Oscars, maybe not all the Oscars it should have won, but it won four uh, Oscars this past Sunday. Any Black Panther fans uh, out there this morning? Yep. Black Panther asks a question about the protagonist. The protagonist is Prince T'Challa. And the question is this, what kind of king will Prince T'Challa be? Will he be a good man? Will he continue to be the good man that he is? Or will power corrupt him and twist him, right? Will he be the kind of king that loves his people? Will he deploy the resources of Wakanda wisely? Will he base his kingdom on a truth or on a lie? Green Book won Best Picture at the Oscars. And Green Book asks this question. If you take a white racist redneck and a sophisticated black artist and you put them in a car literally for hundreds of miles, can friendship overcome their differences? Questions. Questions are central to our stories because we are fundamentally believing creatures, right? And our questions shape our beliefs, and our beliefs shape our choices, and our choices shape our lives. Think about some of the questions that have shaped your life, that have brought you to the place that you are today, that are shaping, that will shape, and have shaped your life. Will you go to school? Where will you go to school? Will you marry? Whom will you marry? What kind of work will you do? What is it that you're going to be passionate about? Where are you going to live? These questions shape our lives. And we ask questions because we are fundamentally believing creatures. Everyone believes something. And if you don't believe that, that in and of itself is a belief, right? We all believe something. God created us to ask questions so that we might ask the question that Mark has been asking his readers for 2,000 years. It's an ancient question. It's the question of the kingdom, and it's this. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? You see, your answer to that question shapes everything. Your answer to that question shapes all of your other questions. It shapes all of your other answers. And ultimately, that question is not a question of data, but of devotion. It's not a question of information, but allegiance. It's not a question of fact, but of faith. It's the question of the kingdom. And I would propose to you this morning that your answer to that question changes from moment to moment. Not because Jesus changes, he remains forever the same, but because your faith waxes and wanes like the moon. Your faith 
ebbs and flows like the tide. And so we're going to look at the passage this morning under three headings. First of all, we're going to look at a question and shadows. And then we're going to look at four responses. And then we're going to look at a final answer. So a question and shadows, four responses, and a final answer. And here's what I'm going to tell you this morning. The only way to be faithful to the end is to see Jesus for who he is. The only way to be faithful to the end is to see Jesus for who he is. Would you look with me here at Mark chapter 6, and we'll start at verse 14. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah. And others said he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him, and she wanted to put him to death, but she could not, for Herod feared John knowing that he was a righteous and holy man and kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oath and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went out and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in the tomb. So far, God's holy and inerrant word, may he write its eternal truth upon all of our hearts. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come this morning to a story of a grisly gift, uh, a question that's being asked, uh, dancing that's not appropriate. And Father, we come wondering what to make of this story. Father, I pray that as we ponder questions and belief, that you would convince us of our sin and misery, that you would enlighten our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and that you would renew our wills by the power of your gospel, through the work of your Holy Spirit, and in the mediation of your Son. I ask that you would forgive the one who teaches his sins, for they are many. May we see Jesus 
and him only. Amen. I encourage you to keep your Bible open this morning. We'll begin with a question and answers. A question and answers. Now, this passage, at least on the surface, seems to be about John the Baptist. That's what it appears to be. And uh, just so we're straight on who John the Baptist is, John the Baptist here is not the first Baptist of the Baptist denomination, right? The first Baptist of the Baptist denomination was actually 1609 in Amsterdam, 92 years after the Reformation started, right? John Smith so you have another John the Baptist, right, moves to Amsterdam and becomes the first Baptist and begins the denomination. So maybe it would be better and easier and simpler to call our John here this morning John the Baptizer, John the Baptizer. Now, the last time John the Baptizer was mentioned in Mark was back in Mark chapter 1. So go ahead and turn a couple pages back to Mark chapter 1 there, and, and you'll see in verses 2 through 14 that as Mark introduces John the Baptist, John the Baptizer, he's framing him as a fulfillment of the prophet, prophet Isaiah, who says, Behold, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And John is called John the Baptizer because he's actually, you know, baptizing people, right? And so he's baptizing, but his baptism is a baptism of the repentance for forgiveness of sins, right? And John's wearing some unusual clothes. He's dressed in camel's hair and a leather belt, not exactly the cutting fashion back then, not exactly the cutting fashion today. I don't see any of you wearing camel's hair uh, this morning, except maybe in a jacket somewhere. He also has a rather unusual diet, right? You see what he's eating there? He's eating locusts. Now, in case you don't know what locusts are, they're kind of like grasshoppers, right? So think of like the legs kind of dangling out of his mouth as he's trying to crunch through to get the protein of the locust. So at least he has protein in his diet, right? And then he has sugar. He's dipping them apparently not in chocolate, which, you know, maybe is a thing today, but in wild honey, right? So he has protein and sugar, in our house, we'd point out that he's not eating a whole lot of green stuff uh, at that point. You know, he, he doesn't get his vegetables. But John knows who he is. He's a forerunner. And so he says, right, I, I come before one whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I'm baptizing you with water, but he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And then Jesus comes and Jesus is baptized by John the baptizer. And when John is baptizing Jesus, you hear God's voice from heaven say, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And then Jesus goes and begins his ministry. And John is sent to prison. John is arrested. He's unfairly and unjustly incarcerated. That's the last time we've heard about John in the Gospel of Mark. And then we come to Mark chapter 6 this morning, and this was the next time that John is mentioned. And as Mark is telling you this story, he's shaping the passage with overtones of and allusions to the Elijah narrative. Because for Mark, John is Elijah. 
Jesus says as much in Mark 9, 13, when he says, I tell you, Elijah has come. He's referring to John the Baptist. Right? Now, this isn't some reincarnation. Right? There's not some mystical voodoo going on here. But for Mark and for Jesus, they realize that John fulfills the role of Elijah. And... Right? Do you, do you remember the Elijah story? If you're not familiar with it, you can go back and read it uh, this afternoon in 1 Kings 16 through about 24. In the Elijah story, uh, King Ahab and that wicked queen, that wicked woman of all wicked women, right? Queen Jezebel is pursuing Elijah and wants to kill Elijah. And Eugene Boring looks at the comparison between these two narratives. And he says, both Ahab and Herod are weak rulers who have a reverential fear of the prophet and want to listen to him, right? They have a fear of Elijah. They have a fear of John. But in each case, the petty ruler is led into sin by his wife, whom he should not have married in the first place. You see, the persecution of God's prophets is nothing new. The persecution of God's prophets is a pattern in history. But I'm wondering why Mark includes this narrative here. You see, these 13 verses aren't chronological. They don't, they don't belong here. This is a flashback. This is a backstory. If you're putting this in chronological order, it would have been perfect to go back to Mark 1, 15. John's been arrested. Now he's in prison. Now he's beheaded, right? But Mark inserts it here. Why does he insert it here? In fact, I'm kind of wondering why Mark includes this passage at all. Right? Remember, Mark is Mr. Efficient. He, he's Mr. Spartan. He doesn't waste words. Right? He, he's kind of like our 30th president, Calvin Coolidge. Remember Calvin Coolidge? Calvin Coolidge was called Silent Cal. He was a man of few words. And whether this story is apocryphal or not, I'm not quite sure. But at one point, uh, a reporter comes to Silent Cal, our 30th president, Calvin Coolidge, and says, I have a bet with another reporter that I can get you to say three words. Do you remember what Calvin Coolidge's response was? You lose. Right? <laughs> Calvin Coolidge didn't waste words. He's like Mark. Mark doesn't waste words. So why, when Mark doesn't waste words, why does he take 13 verses here in our passage this morning to talk about John? This is by far the longest story about someone other than Jesus in Mark's gospel. So why include it at all, and why put it here? Well, Mark is a skilled artisan, and he's bringing you, the reader, along slowly. I think he includes it here for two reasons. First of all, he puts it here because he wants you to compare two kings. Did, did you notice Herod's title there in verse 14? He's King Herod, right? But technically, that's not right. Technically, Herod is not a king. Technically, Herod is a tetrarch, which means a ruler of a fourth part. And that's what he is called in Matthew 14 and Luke 9. It's Herod the tetrarch. So why is it that Mark here calls him a king? Well, it's been suggested that by calling him king, Mark is mocking Herod. You see, as you understand the narrative, when Herod the Tetrarch's father, Herod the Great, died, 
the emperor took Herod the Great's kingdom and distributed it in four parts to four different sons, right? So you have Herod the Tetrarch. Now, Herod the Tetrarch really wanted the title of king, but the emperor refused to him the title of king. Well, later, Herod the Tetrarch's brother died, right? And so his nephew became king. And when his nephew became king, that nephew was given by the emperor the title king. And Herod was insanely jealous. And Herodias was even more jealous. And so Herodias eggs Herod on to get the title of king. And his petition, his request to be given the title of king is what leads to Herod's demise. That request leads Herod to be cast into exile, right? And so Mark here is intentionally mocking King Herod, right? King Herod. You want, you know, come on, buddy. You're not a king. You're just a tetrarch, right? But it was, it was his desiring this title that led to his downfall. And what Mark is saying is he's saying, let me show you a true king. Let me show you a real king. And when you contrast King Herod with King Jesus, the difference couldn't be greater. You see, King Herod in verse 17 sends his men out to seize John and throw an innocent man in prison. But King Jesus, back in verse 7, sends his men out to preach the gospel, bring healing, and set men free. You see, a true king, a king of the kingdom, doesn't wield authority like this Herod. He doesn't marry incestuously or impulsively divorce so that he can marry another. He's not led about by his infatuations. He doesn't give in to lust. He doesn't entertain inappropriate dancing. He doesn't make drunken pledges that he keeps to save face. He's not complicit in incarcerating the innocent or murdering the righteous. No, a true king is faithful and noble and pure. You see, as a puppet of Rome... King Herod didn't even have the power to grant his request. He couldn't give away his kingdom. It wasn't his to give. But the true king, the sovereign king, gives his disciples the power of the kingdom. And he gives his disciples authority over the kingdom of darkness. You see, the king that you've been looking for all your life looks nothing like this King Herod. So Mark sets it here to contrast King Herod and King Jesus. But Mark also sets the John narrative here because he's placing it next to the central question of the book. Did you catch that in verses 14 through 16? In verses 14 through 16, there's this discussion of who is is John, right? Who who is John? And uh, they're, they're, you know, excuse me, who, who is Jesus? And Jesus' name had become known in Herod's court, right? There's been scuttlebutt, and now it's raising up. So the politicians are beginning to discuss, who is this Jesus? And they see miraculous powers, and they're wondering, who is this? And there are three answers that are given, right? Some say he's John the Baptist. Some say he's Elijah. And others say he's one of the prophets. He's one of the prophets of old, And they're asking the same question that's being asked again and again throughout the book. 
It's the point of the book. It's why the book was written. It's the question that Mark wants you to answer because it's the only question that really matters. It's the question that the disciples asked and answered back in, John, back in Mark 4.41, right? Do you remember when Jesus calms the sea? And the disciples say, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? It's the question that was just asked in the synagogue in Nazareth in Mark 6, 2. How are such mighty works done by his hands? Who is this Jesus? And so now it's being discussed in Herod's court. Who is Jesus? Is he John? Is, is, is he John the Baptist raised from the dead? Is he Elijah? Is he one of the prophets? And the only thing that Herod can come up with is John, whom I beheaded has been raised. You see, Herod sees something supernatural about Jesus's ministry, and he suspects that it has to do with the resurrection, but he's racked with guilt because he knows he put an innocent man to death. And so his guilt points him to John, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. But in Mark chapter 8, verse 27, and go ahead and flip uh, with me here. Mark chapter 8, verse 27, there's almost an identical discussion around this question. Except here, it's not in Herod's court. It's among Jesus' disciples. And Jesus says to his disciples, who do people say that I am? And it's the same three answers. John the Baptist, Elijah, or one of the prophets. And then Jesus turns and he says to his disciples, but who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. And that's the answer that the whole book has been waiting towards. The whole book has been leading up to this one answer, right? And all of a sudden Jesus says, okay, that's great. Don't tell anybody. And you're kind of like, wait, wait, why? Why are we not telling anybody, right? Why is it that Jesus does that? It's because Jesus didn't want to be misunderstood. You see, in this day, the Jewish people were being oppressed by the people of Rome. And when you hear Christ, you want to think Messiah, you want to think Deliverer, right? And in that context, they would have said, oh, this is a political, de this is a political deliverance. This is a military deliverance. And Jesus doesn't want to be misunderstood. So what does it say in Mark 8.31? He begins to teach them, right, that the Son of Man must be rejected, he must suffer, he must die, and he'll be raised again on the third day. And that's hard for the disciples to understand. That's hard for the disciples to accept. But you can't really understand who Jesus is without understanding that Jesus came to suffer and die. And so in Mark chapter 6, Mark, this skilled storyteller, puts the question of the discussion, who is Jesus, next to the story of a prophet of God who is unjustly murdered at the hands of a whimsical ruler. Does that story sound familiar? The story of John and Herod anticipates and foreshadows the story of Jesus and Pilate that you'll see in Mark 15, 
right? These two stories echo one another. It's almost like they're in conversation. Lamar Williamson says, both rulers, both Herod and Pilate, are favorably impressed by the Jewish religious figures, John and Jesus, whose lives they would therefore prefer to spare. Both want to please the crowd by a magnanimous gesture. Both are manipulated to carry out the deadly hostility of a third party. And both, those seemingly in charge, become unwilling actors in a drama beyond their control. You see, Mark is using these shadows and these illusions to show you that in contrast with Herod, Jesus is the true king. He's the king who is faithful and noble and pure. But like John, Jesus is a prophet who will be unjustly murdered at the hands of a whimsical ruler. You see, Mark is leading you into the one question that really matters. And then we have four responses this morning. Four responses. There are two responses of resistance and two responses of embrace. The two responses of resistance we see in Herod and Herodias. You see, both Herod and Herodias are rejecting the kingdom, right? Herodias's rejection is a direct, violent opposition, right? She wants to kill John, where Herod is more of kind of an interested curiosity. And you see this, right, in verse 19. And Herodias had a grudge against John and wanted to put him to death. Now, I don't know how more opposed to somebody you can possibly get, right? You have a death wish uh, for the guy. Now, Herod's uh, opposition is a little bit uh, softer. It's a little bit more mild, right? She couldn't put him to death. Why? Because Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. So Herod, with this interested curiosity, right, is protecting John. He hears him gladly, and he knows that John is righteous and holy. You can kind of frame it this way. Herod likes going to church. He's interested in talking about spiritual things. He keeps coming back. He's interested in the discussion. But you can go to church and talk about spiritual things. God's word can even tickle your ears. But if that's all you have, that's not real faith. If that's all you have, you'll be blown about by popular opinion. If that's all you have, you'll never be faithful to the end. You see, neither Herod nor Herodias are committed to the kingdom. They're both resisting the kingdom. They're both rejecting the kingdom. What does your unbelief look like this morning? Some of you just said, oh, wait, but I'm a believer, right? There's not unbelief. But I would propose to you this morning that even if you're a believer, there are still pockets of unbelief. There are still threads of unbelief in your life. Does that look for you more like the opposition of Herodias, right? A direct, violent opposition? Or does that look more for you like the opposition of Herod, an interested curiosity? Two responses of resistance. But then we have two responses of embrace. 
You see, both the 12 disciples and John are embracing the kingdom. Now, some of you are automatically arguing with me. We didn't read anything about the 12 disciples, right? I didn't see anything about the 12. But if you look in our passage, above our passage and below our passage, Mark has given us another Markin sandwich, right? So in Mark 6, verses 7 through 13, you see Jesus commissioning the 12, and you see their success. And then in, John, in Mark 6.30, you see the disciples returning and telling Jesus everything they've done. Right? So you see in 6.13, Jesus sends the disciples out, and they're preaching the gospel, and they're driving out demons, and they're healing the sick. And then they come back, and they're reporting to Jesus everything that they did and taught. And in between... A particular Baptist, a specific Baptist, loses his head. That's why I'm glad I'm Presbyterian. Uh, And what, what is Mark saying? He's saying to you, I want you to understand the faithfulness of John the Baptist in light of the faithfulness of the Twelve. I want you to understand that these two stories go together. First of all, he's saying the Christian life isn't going to be all pink, fluffy unicorns dancing on rainbows, right? It's not all amazing success stories and remarkable reports. There's a cost to discipleship. Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. There will be a price to pay. But then Mark is also saying we need to redefine what we see as success in the Christian life, right? These are two portraits of success, two portraits of faithfulness. Both John and the 12 disciples were successful. Both John and the 12 disciples were faithful. Sometimes faithfulness looks like casting out demons and preaching the gospel and healing the sick, but other times faithfulness simply looks like hanging on to the end. Sometimes faithfulness looks like being murdered for the sake of righteousness. And actually, John's death foreshadows and anticipates many of the deaths of the 12 disciples. You see, church history and tradition tells us that Andrew was crucified and that Peter was crucified upside down, and Thomas was run through with four spears, and Matthew was stabbed to death, and James was stoned and then clubbed to death, and Matthias was burned to death, and Philip and Bartholomew and Simon the Zealot were all cruelly put to death. Paul, the apostle, not a disciple, was beheaded. They were all faithful to the end. And so you have four responses the response of Herod and Herodias, the response of John and the Twelve, the responses of resistance and embrace, of opposition and success, of belief and unbelief, and of faithfulness to the end. And Mark's asking, what's your response to the kingdom? What's your response to the kingdom? And that leads us then to a final answer. 
I don't think that the Christian life is to be experienced like you're binary, like you're flipping a binary switch. That one day you're completely in unbelief and the next day you're completely in belief, right? My experience of the Christian life is that even in the midst of our belief, there are still pockets and threads and strands of unbelief, right? And so whether your unbelief is more like Herodias with direct opposition or more like Herod with an interested curiosity, there is unbelief. And so that we can say with the man in Mark 9, 24, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. So how do we move from unbelief to belief? Where do we find the faith to be faithful to the end? You know, the the disciples... Um, here in our story, have enough faith to go out and preach the gospel and to, you know, heal the sick and to cast out demons. They have enough faith for ministry success. But later, when Jesus was crucified, the disciples scattered, right? John's disciples, we see in Mark 6, 29, John's disciples came and took John's body and laid it in the tomb. But Jesus' disciples, when when Jesus was crucified, they scattered. They they hid. They didn't show their face. They didn't even have enough courage to come and get Jesus' body. Joseph of Arimathea did that. And yet they ended up finding the faith to be faithful to the end. Where did that faith come from? Do you know what the difference is between Jesus' death and the death of John the Baptist? Both Jesus and John the Baptist were unjustly murdered at the hands of a whimsical ruler. Right? But both died. But John was just another dead prophet in the long line of dead prophets. But Jesus' death is the death that the death of John and all of the other prophets pointed to. It's the death that all of those deaths anticipated because Jesus didn't just die. Jesus died for you. You see, Jesus, this faithful and noble and pure king, the true king, the king that you've been looking for all of your life, he sees your inadequacies and your addictions. He sees the behavior that you can't shake and that sin that only you know about. He sees your failures and your shortcomings. He knows your darkest secrets. He knows the parts of you that respond like Herod and the parts of you that respond like Herodias. And he loves you anyway. He loves you with a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. He loves you so deeply and so well that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us and he was faithful to the end. You turn my head. I look, I see your beauty there upon the tree. You're dying to win my hallelujah. And when that becomes real to your heart, when you see Jesus for who he is, when you see that Jesus died for you, then more and more, day by day, your faith will grow. And belief, unbelief will more and more become belief. And your answer to the question, who is Jesus, 
will finally become. He is my Savior. He is my King. He died for me. And that answer will shape your beliefs. And your beliefs will shape your choices. And your choices will shape your life. And then we'll have the faith that will endure to the end. Because the only way to be faithful to the end is to see Jesus for who He is. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we believe, help our unbelief. As we listen to Mark and we see these responses to the one question that really matters, I pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, grow in us a response that says, Jesus is my Savior. And would that shape all of our other answers and all of our other questions? Father, would you lead us in this because we don't get there on our own. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.